History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening on this week's programme. They were leading him to a place of execution. They were making their way down the avenue when they were called to halt. When the firing broke out, Ryan saw his opportunity and he took off. We'll hear two local War of Independence stories that illustrate the state of the conflict a century ago in mid-1921. First, an engagement in Grana, County Limerick, involving an alleged spy sentenced to death by the local IRA. And then... Because we look at the photos of the people, they're photos of, of normality. They're normal wedding photos of families and groups of couples, except for the abnormal situation that they were in. Dan Breen's wedding... A country in lockdown due to the ongoing conflict didn't stop the Tipperary Republican throwing the biggest wedding bash of the summer. Plus... We weren't really trying to get members at the beginning. We were a hothouse trying to educate ourselves. Chains or change? Rosita Sweetman joins me to talk about the Irish women's liberation movement in the early 1970s. But to begin this evening, we're visiting County Limerick and looking at a little-known clash between the local IRA and the Crown Forces. Tomorrow will be the 100th anniversary of this encounter. Kay Sheehy has the story. When the rising age was over, the rebellion then began. With the badly armed volunteers, with only a short-range gun. Now let's not forget the Grana men who played their part so well in the heart of County Limerick in the shadows of Nochfirna Hill. The song you are listening to was written and sung by my neighbour Tommy Reardon. It is one of his tributes to the ambush at Woodcock Hill in Grana in County Limerick. The ambush happened on May the 10th, 1921 when a British patrol came upon an IRA execution party, moving a hostage known by the name of Ryan. Two of the IRA men were Michael O'Shea and Patrick Benson. Woodcock Hill is across the road from my home place in County Limerick, so I set off there to meet Tommy Reardon and another neighbour, Jimmy Chalk, to piece together the story. Jimmy Chalk set the scene. We're at the south end of Grana Parish, in a hill they call it Woodcock Hill. The townland is Colrus, as I say, the parish is Grana. We're looking straight up at the Belly Howrah Hills and over to the southeast at the Gelties, which is the southeastern border of Limerick. And you're looking that way then down towards Crome and Torrey Hill and Nochferna and Ballingarry then are back to the west. Very much a rural community and these would have been ordinary rural fellas as well. I asked Tommy Reardon to describe the ambush. You see, them, the volunteers were formed soon after the rising. Grana had won the Junior Hurling Championship in 1916, and there was a lot of them volunteers, there was a share of them playing hurling, and their captain was Mikoshia. They say he was an outstanding hurler. He was captain of the team and all. He later became a lieutenant in the volunteers. 1921, anyway, the tens the, the were patrolling the roads day and night here. They did everything to find out who the volunteers were. 
So they sent a spy around. He was supposed to be looking for work, but uh, he was on a spying mission. The volunteers, quick enough, decided to arrest him. They carried him up here to Woodcock. The, up to the house? Up, no, no. There was an outhouse there. It was a coach house one time. It was there he was held anyway, and they held him for a few days. But they were getting a bit, they were getting a bit shaky because the tans were, were patrolling the road constantly. They decided to move him down, cross the road, down to a house in Sheehy's. Uh, yeah, yeah. But they never got there. They never got there. And as far as I know, he was only going to be staying there for a while and he was going to be carried back to Liskinis. He was going to be executed in Liskinis. Bob Kumbaugh, I was talking to him myself and he told me all about it. But it never happened anyway. He, he was going to have the job of the execution? Yeah, so he told me. For the tans must have got their info and they timed it to the tea. They parked their lorries on the roadside, three miles outside brewery. As the tans approached the convey, they shouted, who goes there? The spy was first to answer them as the bullets filled the air. The trial of the court case took place up here in a house uh, in Woodcock Hill. Ryan was believed to be the spy. They obviously had their own kind of, call them IRA courts, call them kangaroo courts, whatever you like. As far as I know, there was a four that we know of volunteers. There may well have been more and there may have been lookouts. After they tried Ryan and found him guilty, apparently they were leading him to a place of execution. They were making their way down the avenue when they were called to halt. When the firing broke out, Ryan saw his opportunity and he took off. And he ended up escaping on the British, the back of the British lorry. Well, it would appear that the British had been tipped off because they had parked the trucks about a half a mile away and had walked up, creeped back along here and were waiting inside a stone wall here uh, to just, the entrance, just over, there. just over here as we're standing, almost at the entrance to the avenue. And as the lads were coming down along the avenue, I suppose it's about 300 yards long, as they were coming down the hill there, from, they were called in to halt. Some say they believed it was their own lads who were just out and saw these fellas approaching, but it wasn't, it was the British. And when they didn't halt immediately, they opened fire. They didn't hit the prisoner and he was being laid, but they hit Patrick Benson, I think, in the shoulder and in the neck, and they hit Mikoshea and, and, I suppose, fairly badly wounded him. But he did survive. They ran down next door to a farmhouse, ordered the men to bring up his trap car without a horse or pony, and they literally threw the wounded men onto it, and he had to take it over about a half mile off the road, and they threw him onto the lorries as a result of heavy bleeding or what, but Mikoshe unfortunately lost his life and uh, his father and sister had to go to Charleville to identify the body. Now most of our unarmed men had made our getaway, but two brave men lay on the ground, Pat 
Parik Hogan is a local genealogist and historian. I met him in Chenevaha Cemetery at the grave of Michal O'Shea, the murdered volunteer. We hear a lot about the activity in Tipperary and Cork, but there was probably just as much activity in uh, in the Limerick area. There was a, a significant attack on the Kilmallock uh, Barracks, which was one of the biggest events of the time. And also, Grana being on the boundary between East and West Limerick, the East Limerick Battalion and West Limerick Battalion, the flying columns of both those battalions would have been moving through the Grana area on a, on a regular basis. So they would have seen uh, quite a bit of action. and they would have, The local houses would have had the need to... Um, to put up members you know, of the of the flying columns in their houses, and they they were heavily active in uh, drilling in the area with as you know some famous figures like De Valera, and they um, they provided uh, guard to Countess Markovitz when she visited uh, Brewery in 1919. And if one member of a family joined, several brothers tended to join. Uh, Michal O'Shea had two brothers in the local company and two brothers-in-law one of them my great-grandfather Bill Hogan From Kingsland came Jack Scanlon a rebel true and true Jack done what was the postman then should he told us all he knew of how he escaped the blackened hands when down a quarry he flew from Liskinet came Paddy Carroll, a tried and trusted man. But he was quick to join the column when the troubles first began. That song, written and performed by Tommy O'Reardon, paying tribute to the local men in Grana, County Limerick, and their role in the War of Independence. That ends that piece from Kay Sheehy on the Woodcock Ambush, which took place on the 10th of May 1921, a century ago tomorrow. After the break, we'll be staying with the War of Independence and visiting County Tipperary to tell the story of Dan Breen's wedding to Bridget Malone in June of 1921. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. 
Over the past year or so, it's been pretty much impossible for couples to throw the kind of huge wedding bash that we used to take for granted, with every cousin, friend and associate present and accounted for. A century ago, during the War of Independence, one prominent Tipperary Republican and his fiancée faced quite a few challenges in planning their wedding, and they had to take some extraordinary measures to make sure the big day could go ahead. Our reporter, Connor Sweetman, has the story. I was hoping we could start by taking a look at an iconic photograph of the wedding party. Do you have it beside you? I can bring it up here for sure, yeah. In one of the books here. So I have the photo, yeah. So can you just describe what you're looking at there? Well, the photo we have here is the wedding photo of Dan Breen and Bridget Malone. And they're seated with their bridesmaid and best man behind them. The bridesmaid is Bridget Malone's sister, Annie. And the best man is uh, Sean Hogan, another one of the Tipperary Big Four. The two women are dressed in their finery with the dresses with they had made themselves with Celtic motif. But probably the most interesting aspect of this photo is the fact that there's an automatic pistol resting across the, the laps of the bride and groom. Mauser C96 pistol, which was a very effective weapon used by some of the Tipperary IRA at the time. In 1921, Ireland was in lockdown. The War of Independence had been raging for over two years. Government imposed travel restrictions and curfews had become part of everyday life for Irish people. We think of this period as a time of revolution. We don't normally think about it as a time of romance. But one romance that did blossom was between Bridget Malone, a young Dublin woman, and Dan Brian, a Tipperary IRA gunman who at the time was one of the most wanted men in Ireland. So how did Ireland's most wanted rebel find the time to meet a girl, get engaged and organise a wedding, all under the nose of the Crown forces? I spoke to Tipperary historian Sean Hogan to find out about Brian and his bride-to-be. Malone's were a, a very interesting family, really, from Dublin. Uh, Bride's eldest brother, Willie, was in the Royal Dublin Fusiliers and serving with the British Army in France and was killed there in May 1915. But less than 12 months later, another brother, Michael Malone, was serving with Eamon de Valera's volunteers and he was also killed. So the two women lost two brothers in, in, in less than 12 months. Bridget Malone's older sister, Annie, was also out in 1916. She was uh, shot in the hip in St. Stephen's Green. And uh, during the War of Independence, she became an IRA operative supporting the IRA squad, as they were known. And that's how they were closely connected with the Tipperary men, who had given quite a bit of time in Dublin as well. In January 1919, Dan Breen participated in the ambush at Solohead Beg, which signalled the beginning of the War of Independence. Two police officers were killed in the ambush and afterwards Breen and his comrades went on the run. And had a tough enough time uh, in, in Tipperary after that and they eventually moved to Dublin and lived for a while in Dublin and operated when Collins' squad was being set up in September 1919 and became involved in their operations, including an operation to attack Lord French. During that, they failed to kill Lord French. Uh, he was coming from the railway station at Ashtown to the Vice Regal Lodge in Phoenix Bar and they ambushed him uh, where it intersected. Navin Road there. They, they missed their target, but another IRA man called Martin Savage was killed and Breen was shot in the leg. 
And it was that event that was to bring him into contact with the Malones, in fact. Uh, they had to put him up on his bike and, and tow him back to Fibsborough, where he was uh, treated by Dr. Ryan. And after that initial treatment, he was then shipped to Malone's house in Grantham Street. And uh, the two women, Annie and Bridget Malone, nursed uh, Breen then and treated him, took care of his wound uh, after that until he was recovered again. Once he had recovered, Breen went straight back to work. Unfortunately, he was shot again in October 1920. And ended up back in Malone's again, being nursed by the two sisters there again from October, November and into December. And apparently at the end of December, Breen was leaving to go back to Tipperary and they had decided at that stage. So the romance had obviously developed to the point where they decided to get married and had fixed the following June as the time, which was, you know, optimistic on, on their behalf, really. It was optimistic because it was a dangerous time in Ireland. Many of the bride and groom's friends had been killed in combat or captured and executed. Bridget travelled by train along with her sister and bridesmaid Annie. Because of lockdown and travel restrictions, the two women posed as holidaymakers and boarded a train from Euston Station to Thurlis. They were picked up at Thurlis train station by members of the South Tipperary Brigade. Dan Breen was a senior officer in the brigade and he had arranged for two active service units or flying columns to protect the wedding. So you had about 60 armed IRA men uh, moved into the area, you know, who would normally be moving around looking for targets to attack the Crown forces. They did the usual thing, they cut some trees, you know, to block the Crown forces from being able to drive in on them, set up armed guards and those to fire on anyone, you know, so that was their part and their role. So you had these 60 young men, you know, armed men in the area as well. So as well as the others who were invited to the wedding, you know, we don't know who the invitation list was and who made it and who didn't make it and who, who wasn't invited. But it was a good gathering of prominent IRA people on the day, really, or for the day, for the weekend. The wedding was on Sunday. So what do we know about the day itself and the sequence of events on the day? Uh, the three phases to the day. The wedding ceremony took place in, in uh, Purcell's house in, in Glengat. Uh, they're strong farmers, and the Purcell's feature in some of the photos, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Purcell. That was the first part of the actual ceremony, and there were quite a number of photos taken there, around the house. The second phase of the day, they moved on for the breakfast, the wedding breakfast in Luby's house, again, not very far away. And they moved to a third house then, Davins of Rasala, which was the headquarters of the South Tiberi Brigade, the IRA, was on Davins farm, Davins land. And they had the, the party and the sort of celebration there. That was the three phases of the, of the day. And they, I, again, I think, because we look at the photos of, of the people they're photos of, of normality. These are wedding photographs, you know. We're, we're not for the pistol in the person. But the other photos, you know, they're, they're, they're normal wedding photos of families and groups of couples and whatever, uh, except for the, the abnormal situation that they were in. This was something taking place in the midst of the Crown Forces, you know, and, and uh, had been kept secret and w- was done. I mean, the danger of, of word spilling and, and becoming a target you know, it would have been very significant, really, there. But the word didn't, there was no no linking of the word uh, about this. And so that's the, that's the extraordinary thing about the photos, really. It looks so normal, except that the next photo then is four IRA men standing, smiling, smoking their cigarettes and, hold, you know, standing with their weapons, nearly enjoying the day as well, you know. So they weren't all out on duty all the time. They got to, they got to enjoy it, really, as well. After the wedding, the couple went to Breen's home country in West Tipperary for a honeymoon, staying in houses of various friends and family for a few nights. 
After that, Bridget returned to Dublin and Breen resumed his duties of running the war in South Tipperary. When the truce came four weeks later, Ireland emerged from lockdown and Dan and Bridget were reunited. After the truce was declared, I think Ireland went into complete party mode. As I say, it was almost like coming out of lockdown. I think what we'd expect to happen here now, coming out of COVID lockdown. Uh, people, young people who hadn't been able to have dances and whatever, they just made up for lost time. And throughout the months of July, August and into September, every night there was a, a dance and people were on their bikes going here, there and everywhere. And an awful lot of romance, I'd say, in, in Ireland among people who had been the heroes of this particular period. But that, of course, didn't end well then with the Civil War, and that became very difficult. Now, to say the likes of Dan Breen and Bridget Malone, they had probably a glimpse of what a life might have been had the revolution continued and been successful. They would have been the leaders in the, in the brave new world. But that wasn't what happened. The National Army routed them very quickly, and they had to take the living rough again, back you know, on the run again. This time, they didn't have the popular support that they had during the, the War of Independence or the Tan War, as referred to. So coming down from that was a very difficult, a different one, I think, for them because, you know, they were in a very difficult situation. They weren't going to get the jobs that were available. You know, they'd fought the state, but the new state wasn't going to provide them with jobs and employment. So it was difficult for them. I, I think there is no question about that. Many of them did eventually build lives and uh, settle to new lives and with their wives and families and got on with it, tried to get on with things. But I think we should not underestimate the difficulty that families had. Uh, coming through and coming from those years of revolution. Those years of revolution took their toll on our cast of characters from the iconic wedding photograph. Annie Malone, the bridesmaid on the day, Bridget's sister, she went to America, stayed for a number of years till about 1927, but came back then and married a man who had been a National Army officer, a man called Theo Fitzgerald, who became Lord Mayor of Dublin. And Sean Hogan, he, he married a woman called Christina Butler and had three sons but he became separated from his wife and seemed to have great difficulty and I think clearly the impact of the events he'd been involved in you know were, were, were to be seen in his later life Dan Breen and Bridget Malone would say were obviously the married couple although I think to, there was difficulty in the relationship and they, uh, and they had difficult times and I think would have been separated towards the end of their uh, their lives I think Breen, as I say, was a successful TD, you know, for, for Tipperary for the 30 years, really, that he was there. Uh, I think uh, he, he died in 1969. Uh, Dan Breen died in, in December of 1969 uh, and was buried in Donohill in West Tipperary, where he comes from, his own home territory. Uh, Bridget Malone died, I think, in 1984, and she's buried also in Donohill in the same graveyard as Dan Breen. Brian, in his book My Fight for Irish Freedom, devotes a disappointingly short chapter to his romance with Bridget Malone. Most of what we know has come through the Malone family and, of course, the photographs. There was one piece that I might just add that I didn't talk about. The photographer on the day was a man called Jack Sharkey, who was an intelligence officer for South Tipperary Brigade of the IRA. And he brought along his camera. So it may not have been the wisest from, uh, you know, if the, if the films had to fall into the hand of the Crown Forces. But uh, his photos are contained in two albums in the Bureau of Military History, and they really are a wonderful record. Our historian Sean Hogan works with the group Tipperary in the Decade of Revolution. They're planning on running a series of events after we come out of lockdown later in the year. You can learn more about their work at tiprevolution.ie.
Connor Sweetman was reporting there. He was talking to historian Sean Hogan about the romance of Dan Breen and Bridget Malone during the Irish War of Independence. Still to come on the show, I'll be joined by Rosita Sweetman to talk about the Irish women's liberation movement in the early 1970s. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. In 1970, the Irish Women's Liberation Movement was launched by a small group of women journalists and political activists wanting to highlight the huge inequality that women faced in Ireland. They published a manifesto, Chains or Change. Nell McCafferty and Maureen Johnson delivered it to the Irish people on the Late Late Show on the 6th of March 1971. Joining me this evening to talk about this seminal moment in modern Irish history is Rosita Sweetman, a founding member of the Irish Women's Liberation Movement. She's also the author of the book Feminism Backwards, a memoir and a reappraisal of this time. Rosita, you are very welcome to the History Show. Thank you, Miles. Take us back, if you would, to the beginnings. How did the Irish Women's Liberation Movement get started and who was involved uh, at Ground Zero? Really, it was Maureen de Barca. And I was in a discussion with Maureen recently at Maynooth University. And Maureen casually said, oh, yeah, it was when I was in prison. And I was thinking, my God, would, would any political activist be in prison these days? But that was the 70s and it was an incredibly political time. And Maureen had been active against the war in Vietnam, the Dublin Housing Action Committee, civil rights. And she started thinking, I'm fighting for all these issues. Why am I not fighting for women? And very soon after she came out of prison, she was in the Workers' Party bookshop. She was running that in Gardner Street. And two feminists came from America and she was talking with them. And around the same time, Mary Marr, who was from Chicago, had been home and she brought back Betty Friedan's book. Books then were like the sacred text. Like There was no Amazon or book depository There wasn't any online to go and order a book. You had to be in New York and buy the book or be in America and buy the book. So the first meeting was with Margaret Guy, who was a wonderful woman who ran Guy's Restaurant, a lifelong activist, Mary Marr and Maureen de Burke. And they met in Bewley's and they decided, yes, it would be a really good idea to set up a women's movement in Ireland. There were two more meetings in people's houses, one in Mary Marr's house, one in Mary Kenny's house. And then Mrs Guy said, why don't you all come and I'll give you the upstairs room in Guy's, which was in Bagot Street, to meet. And it was brilliant because it was really convenient to everybody. It was really easy to get to. You could grab something to eat before going up. And that was when we started every Monday evening at Guy's. I was surprised actually at how short was the duration of the existence of the Irish Women's Liberation Movement. We'll we'll get on to that later. But how did you get the word out that this movement had begun? How did you actually get members, attract members to the organisation? Initially, it was word of mouth. A lot of us were in journalism 
But like I was just thinking back on that. We weren't really trying to get members at the beginning. We were a hothouse trying to educate ourselves. It was Mary Mars' idea to put Chains or Change together. And we launched that on the Late Late Show. And that was really when the word got out that there was a women's movement in Ireland, that there were these issues that women were passionate about. And it was really after the Late Late that things exploded and 900 women turned up at a meeting in the Mansion House. To all our astonishment, like some of us thought we might be sitting there on our own for the evening. But after the late, late, the story just exploded around Ireland and women came from all over to that meeting. We'll come back to the uh, iconic, I suppose you could call it, late, late programme and the row that resulted during that and then from that. But just tell us a little bit about the the aims of the organisation. What were your demands? I think you had six main demands at the time. Can you, can you remember what, what were they? Yeah, it was, the demands really developed as we put together chains or change equal pay, equal education, equality in law, contraception, uh, one family, one house. Justice for deserted wives. Just, yeah, for deserted wives, widows and unmarried mothers. Those were the main things. And they developed through the meetings, through the meetings in guise and through putting together chains or change, because it was through that we began to see how incredibly bad things were for women because most of us were we were privileged you know we were middle class we were in really cool jobs we were having a great time but it was really putting together the information that we began to see oh my god it's it's unbelievable how bad the situation is for women and how corralled and disempowered women in Ireland are. And was it difficult, Chains chains or Change, great name by the way, but was it difficult to actually assemble all that information all that length of time ago? I mean, you obviously, as you say, you had no internet and uh, you would have limited access, presumably in those days, to the kind of statistics that you needed. So was it a difficult task and was it a shocking task when you actually managed to accumulate this information? It was incredibly difficult, you know, like it's hard to remember how difficult it was to collect information before Google came along. You know, you had to physically go to trade union offices, you had to physically go through newspaper files. It was a big task. It was huge. And then Marie McMahon, who was one of the younger members of the group, and she was the only female printer in Ireland. She put together all the information and Marie just sat weeping with rage at how appalling it was. We revealed the structure of the patriarchy and it was also the first time in Ireland's history that anyone had looked at how women were being treated, which is kind of extraordinary. It was like, it didn't matter up to then. So we revealed, you know, we pulled back the curtain and revealed just how appalling it was. 
and you did it on the preeminent forum in Ireland of the time, the kind of the town meeting forum, the Late Late Show, stoked, I'm sure, by the great Gay Byrne. But tell us about that epochal programme, that epochal Late Late Show on the 6th of March, 1971. It was Mary Kenny's idea that we should go on the Late Late. And there was a lot of discussion back and forth like some of the sisters felt, no, we shouldn't go on, it's too soon. Others felt, yeah, let's go on, because everybody in the whole country watched The Late Late at the time. And actually, Gay Byrne gave us a really good deal. Like We were allowed to choose the panel, and we were allowed to pretty much choose the audience. And we took it incredibly seriously. We practiced and practiced that nobody would shout or scream or be emotional that we'd be really rational and reasonable but then of course Mary Kenny who was a total firebrand at the time she threw a hand grenade into the mix she probably got bored at at all the politeness and she said there isn't a politician in the country who gives a damn about women's rights And at that moment, Garrett Fitzgerald, who was sitting by his fire, leaped into his car, drove up to the studios in RTE. And when you think about it, it's funny. He was immediately ushered in to the Late Late Show studio. Gay, of course, was a preeminent media host. He knew this would be great television. Garrett Fitzgerald was given sort of the prime seat to say, you know, yes, everything would be wonderful when he got in. And of course, the whole studio exploded. And afterwards, there was some disappointment that we hadn't been reasonable or rational. But looking back, it was actually, it was a brilliant thing because it showed the depth of feeling. And if we had spent the whole evening being terribly rational and reasonable, we mightn't have got through to so many women because showing depth of feeling can carry a message across sometimes more than being really logical. And it certainly had a huge impact. Like everybody was talking about it afterwards and chains or change just kept selling out. Like as soon as we would just her off another few hundred copies, it would disappear again. It was for sale for 10p, Maureen Johnson was just reminding me, but people couldn't get enough of it and they couldn't get enough of women's liberation. Women couldn't get enough of it. So that was when the story exploded all over Ireland. But I'm sure there must have been some adverse reaction to the appearance on the the Late Late Show. I mean, I'm sure the word hysterical, which is always you when when a woman raises her voice above a certain pitch, she always she's hysterical. So I'm sure that must have been tossed around a lot. And I mean, I know there was certainly um, opposition from within the Catholic Church, for example. Oh, the atmosphere was incredibly toxic in some ways, you know, like. I'm sort of coming across as it was really positive and it was really positive that we got the message out. But for instance, one day we were doing a little march, like I'd say it was 30 of us walked up to the Doyle where Mary Robinson, 
who wasn't ever a member of the Irish women's movement, but she was very supportive and would come to meetings and give legal advice. And Mary was actually in the Senate trying to get her contraceptive bill through. And uh, we were outside and the senator came rushing out. Like there were women there with little ones in buggies and he screamed at us, you should all be on your hands and knees like animals because that's all you are. Like it was so shocking. I remember just being absolutely stunned and thinking, you know, it was like poking a crocodile. You suddenly realise the viciousness of the opposition. And Bishop Cassidy, I think his name was, he preached that there is nowhere more unsafe in the world than a mother's womb. Like it was, it was so shocking. So yes, there was huge pushback. I was just researching an essay on Mary Robinson recently and I'd forgotten that when she was running for president, one of the politicians, Fianna Fáil politician, said she'd turn the Oris into the red cow inn. It was like, you know, there was that sort of brutal misogyny mm. that was definitely there. Now, in addition to the Late Late Show appearance, which obviously made a splash, the other big splash was made in May 1971, and that was when the contraceptive train episode happened. Tell us about that, and what was the the thinking behind that? Again, that was Mary Marr and Nell. It was really their brainchild. And the idea was that we would go up to Belfast, buy the contraceptive pill, come back and challenge the customs officers at Connolly Station to arrest us because contraception was illegal at the time. I think it was 47 women got on the train. I was was bad. I didn't get on the train because it was my 23rd birthday and I stayed in bed with my lover who, because he was English, had contraceptives rather ironic but I was there to greet everyone when they came back and when they got to the chemist in Belfast they were told they couldn't actually buy contraceptives in Belfast either without a prescription so it was Nell's idea buy loads of aspirin and nobody will know the difference so when they came back and somebody shouted loose your contraceptives and they threw pills in the air They were actually aspirin. Um, (laughs) People were really afraid, like Maureen Johnson, who was pregnant at the time and had one of her children with her. She'd bought spermicidal jelly and went up to the customs officer and said, you know, challenged him, said, you know, it's mine, you can't take it. But she was terrified. And a lot of the women were that they would be put in prison Marie McMahon was terrified as well. Like, we didn't know. And Maureen de Burke had organised a group of women to be there to support them coming back, and I was part of that. And Marie McMahon said, as they were coming towards Connolly, and she could hear us shouting, let them through, let them through, that she almost cried with relief, you know, because she felt whatever happened, it was going to be okay. 
that there would be support there and visibility. You know, they wouldn't just be quickly arrested and taken away. But again, like it took another 20 years, if you can believe it, for contraception to be properly and fully legalized. But it did open up the conversation about contraception. It did show that it was there as a right that every woman could grab and that direct action was, it wasn't just possible, but it was available to everybody. The direct action part of it was as important as the message. There was so much shame around sexuality and contraception was clearly involved in sexuality and that we would go out and say, yes, we want contraceptives for everybody, that that in itself had an impact in just dismantling some of the shame the Catholic Church had built up around sex. So, yeah, they were fun times. I can remember Kate Millett saying, you know, how glorious it was to be part of the amazing women in America in second wave feminism. And it was great fun. There were frightening times, you know, when a man would attack you or, you know, or a woman, but it was a lot of men. But it was also felt we were on a wave of something really big and it was really, really positive. And it was going to bring really great changes for everybody and for our sex that was very much needed. And that felt great. Now, uh, Nuala Fennell was one of the, I think, the early members, if not necessarily the original members of the of the women's movement. And yeah, then she yeah. later went on to become a, a, a TD. So although the Irish women's liberation movement was short lived, less than a year, it did seem to pave the way for women to get into the political system and to begin to make a difference. Absolutely. Yeah. Like one of the things we discovered in Chains or Change in education, these are some of the careers that were barred to women, like engineers, airline pilots, bus drivers, police inspectors, bank managers, newspaper editors, compositors, criminal lawyers, judges, surgeons, technicians, accountants, higher civil servants. The young women of today who are so brilliant and have really interesting careers that they love and cherish, it's hard for them to even imagine a situation in which so much was barred to women. But it was like 1% of professionals were women. 1%. We did change the world a bit. And there were very interesting groups that came on, like even though, like you've been saying, the IWLM only lasted for nine months, a whole bunch of organisations kind of were birthed from that. A lot of them looking after a specific area, you know, like Battered Wives that Nuala Fennell and her husband were involved in, the Irish Family Planning Clinic, the Well Woman Centres, the Rape Crisis Centre, Cherish, Irish Women's Aid, a whole load of organisations, usually working to a specific issue, grew out of the ground that we'd dug up. There was also Irish Women United in 1975. They did some great protests, like 
they invaded the 40 foot where the men had, they'd basically nabbed the best swimming spot in Sandy Cove and said it was only for them and they could bathe there nude. So a whole bunch of women, like they went out on successive weeks, but the men were so nasty, you know, like these big old walruses walking around in their nude, but they'd get um, wet towels and try and attack the women. Some of them got very nasty, but thankfully now that the 40 foot is open to everybody. So there were um, direct actions as part of Irish Women United that were really effective and fun as well. One of the less heralded members, I mean, you mentioned a lot of names that would be very familiar to people, Mary Kenny, Nell McCafferty, Mary Marr, people like that. But uh, one of the founding members, Mary Sheeran, died recently. Tell us about her and her impact on the movement. Yeah, we, we just buried Mary last week. She was a sweetheart, really gentle soul. Like an amazing thing, thinking about how education was so slewed in favour of men. Like Mary was brought up in a, in Cabra and her parents were passionate about education and felt the most important way they could support their girls was helping them to get an education. And when Mary was they were trying to get her into secondary school. There was a corporation grant for boys to go on to a secondary school that was £100. And for girls, it was £15. You know, it's just like, it's unbelievable, really. But Mary, she was never a really rowdy member. She was very efficient at getting stuff done. And it was Mary who booked the roundhouse in the mansion house for the meeting where 900 women turned up. And I remember Mary saying, you know, we we really thought we might be there speaking to ourselves for the evening. But the queue of speakers was so long of women wanting to get up and tell their stories. And most of them were you know, like Marie McMahon said, raging infernos. Like women had been so oppressed. But the queue of speakers was so long that at 11 at night, we had to just stop it. You know, we had to stop any more women joining. But Mary, the group that we had, it was very diverse, but that was its strength in a way that somebody like Maureen de Burke, who's a passionate socialist, June Levine, who was had come late to the women's movement, like June was middle class, married, but as passionate, if not more so than Maureen de Burke and Mary Sheeran, who knew how to get stuff done. You know, so the group, it kind of worked, even though we were all really different. The mix worked. Now, there's no doubt that the Irish women's movement in its various forms and manifestations had a huge impact on social change in Ireland in the 70s and 80s. But I'm, I'm minded of an occasion where uh, at a forum in Trinity College, uh, Garrett Fitzgerald claimed credit, not personally, but for Irish politicians for the social change that had taken place in Ireland in the 70s and 80s. And it was pointed out to him that uh, perhaps the EEC and legislation in the EEC, which was forced on Ireland, and a liberal Supreme Court 
might also have played a part in all of that. How important was something like Europe, for example, in actually forcing Irish politicians to introduce the kind of changes that you were were looking for? I think Europe has been incredibly important. There's almost a generation divide in Ireland, I think, like that the younger generations totally see the benefits of belonging to Europe and the liberalisation that Europe has brought in. Like Irish politicians, a lot of them, I don't know what you'd need to get them to change. You know, it's incredibly despair-making that at the moment Irish politicians are still not um, giving justice to the survivors of the mother and baby homes. It's absolutely unbelievable that, you know, supposedly educated men on huge salaries aren't giving justice to these women and their children and the adoptees. I I don't know, a despair of of Irish politicians. I'm glad we're in Europe, but sometimes I wish Europe would um, push them around a bit more. You know, like we did the Irish Women's Liberation Movement, we did bring about change, but there's so much more change needs to happen in Ireland to separate the church, the Catholic church, to get it completely out of both education and health, to separate it completely and to get it to pay for all the damage it's done to women. Well, it's been a pleasure to to talk to you. Um, the book, your book is called Feminism Backwards. Uh, it's Rosita's own story intertwined with the fight for women's rights in Ireland. It's published by Mercier Press and is available from their online bookshop and uh, from bookshops across the country. Rosita, as I say, it's been a great pleasure, a great privilege to talk to you on The History Show. I'm sure that there are a few battered copies of Chains or Change around. Obviously, you've got at least one yourself, hopefully on people's bookshelves. And if not, if you want to have a look at it, you can go into the National Library uh, to have a look and to read it. And apparently it's catalogued alongside the Communist Manifesto. So Rosita Sweetman, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you so much, Miles. Thank you. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Logan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.